Hey, what's going on? My best Bill Burr impression. Zuriko here, CEO of SourceFind Asia, co-host of the Made in China podcast, host of the SourceFind Asia YouTube channel. And in this episode, I was I sat down with Harrison Bevins. He's like, as I said in the episode, he's probably the person I've interviewed the most, which is funny. Like he's been on so many, so many podcasts and so many YouTube um, videos. Uh, with me, but we were in Manila. We're hanging out at this place called The Refined. If you want to check out what that is, you can go to The Refined. Just Google The Refined Manila and it'll pop up. But you can also go to our YouTube channel and watch the video that I did where I interviewed the CEO and co-founder, Noel Nagit. Um, he's from Toronto. He's a Toronto boy like me. And we inter- I interviewed him at the refined and there's some cool shots of the of the place. And if you want to see, there's a visual component to this podcast as well. So you know, we, me and Harrison, are hanging out at the refined, and I interviewed him. And the whole point of this episode is third year in China lessons, who and transitioning out of China. It's third year in China for Harrison, fourth year in China for me. Um, and Harrison has transitioned out of China. He's you know he spent the la- later part of last year in. I think um, I think in Thailand and potentially Vietnam. I'm not sure if you went. No, I don't think he went to Vietnam, but he was in Thailand um, and South Korea. And now he was in Manila, and then he went to South Korea, and then I think he um, I think he's gonna go to I think he's going to Vietnam after that. So he, he didn't go to v- Vietnam last year. So, anyways, the the we've this is the third podcast that we've done in this series. And last year we did second year in China lessons, which is also a video cast that's up on the YouTube channel where we we did it at the IFC in Guangzhou. And the year before was first year in China, obviously. And yeah, we just sit down and review kind of the lessons that we've learned from doing business in China for three years. And it's interesting to if you listen to the previous ones to see the progression, because like the first one, Harrison was just figuring out his stuff and he just come back from Taiwan. And he was teaching English and started a dropshipping store. And then in the second one, he'd sold this dropshipping store and he was running the FBA stuff. And and then the third one, now it's like the FBA stuff is doing well and he's made enough, he's making enough money where he can comfortably leave China and he doesn't necessarily need to be in China at the same uh, all the time to run his business and you know deal with his factories and stuff like that. So you can see the steady progression. Um, and then the transition, we spent a lot of time talking about why one would transition out of China and and what that transition process looks like, um, you know, for me as well. Having been in China for four years, I'm in the process of doing the same thing. My my company is at a stage where you know I don't have to be in the office all the time. I I travel a lot for work anyways, so I I spend less and less time every year actually sitting in the office, um, and you know I. I'm considering a place like Manila at setting up a home base there and maybe spending setting up a base there and maybe spending three to six months out of the year there and three to six months uh, six months out of the year in in China and flying back and forth and the thing is like being in Manila you're two hours away it's a hundred and fifty dollar return ticket cost of living is is lower than Guangzhou so like you can you know get a, a really amazing place for pretty much half the price of what I'm paying right now. Or the same as what I'm paying, and I could get like a penthouse. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's just a lot of benefits to being there, you know, and and it's it shows progression. That's the reason why I started the company in the first place was that I could have the freedom to live in different countries and travel. So, anyways, uh, without further ado, enjoy the podcast. But again, check out the video on the YouTube channel if you want to see the visual component to this, and you want to see the refined 
and see me and Harrison hanging out at the refined cheers. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Rico here, CEO of SourceFind Asia, and I'm back with another one, another YouTube blog, Made in China podcast episode with Harrison Bevins. I think you're like the most interviewed person I've I'm ever had. On, super like, popular on your, always, on your podcast, always bro. Always on my podcast, always like, man, this, has, this is the last time. What? <laughs> no. no. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, so yeah, what we're doing, as promised, uh, third year China lessons and then the transition outside of China. First year we did that podcast, you had just come back from uh, Taiwan. I think you're just about to launch a drop shipping store, or maybe it already. He's already running a drop shipping store. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so you talked about the the experiences of like leaving China, realizing that you needed to be more productive. So we came back. I mean, it's too early to do that. Yep. Um, second year was more, you know, having sold the drop shipping store. Um, started an Amazon business in that transition of the up and ups and downs and the cash flow issues and yep. things like that. Um, sort of understanding the game a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, all the different ways that you can make money online, especially if you have access to suppliers and things like that. You could just pop over. I think you. I think you gave an example of a story where you wanted to ship out uh, some products just before Chinese New Year, and you yeah. found the supplier two weeks prior, and then you yeah. went there, you did the inspection yourself, you shipped out the products. You see how, exactly. good, my, see how good my memory is? Yeah. That, that's really so good. That's you watched the video yesterday, didn't you? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Maybe I just care about our conversations. Oh, I remember it just because I, I did watch it like a few weeks ago. Um, I think the last time I watched it was whenever we released it. Yeah, which I think which was, was not too long ago. Two, two, three months ago, I think. But we shot it last April. Just yeah. To make make that clear. Yeah. So that was yeah. So the content was at the time definitely over a year ago, or about a year ago. But I released it uh, recently. Um, yeah. So I think right now we're both. Well, you've already left China, but we're both in a position where we're transitioning out of China. Yeah. But we're always going to be connected to China because of, you know, product businesses. I wanted to start with uh, I guess when was the moment you decided, you know what, like I'm 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 leaving. Um so I went back to the US in the summer of 2018, last summer. And I spent about a month there and at this time my Amazon products were blowing up and I was just seeing how much money you can actually make with this type of model. Yeah. And at this point, I didn't have any other supplemental income and I was seeing that you could live off this type of business full time and really live wherever you want. And I came back to China and at that point, at that point... Um, the boss just walked in. <laughs> at that point, Yeah, I came back in July, and at that point, I was like, "I will leave China before the end of this year," um, and that was definitely the. It was at that time when I made the decision that I was going to leave. Okay, 
And then what what steps did you start making towards transitioning out? Let's see. Well, we were lucky in the fact that we didn't have an apartment lease, like a typical apartment lease. My living situation, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. Month to month situation. Yep. And uh, it was actually her boss's apartment. So the the really only difficult thing was kind of getting her on board. Um, so I mean, if, if if I was on my own and I wanted to leave, uh, the only thing that I would have done to prepare really is is done some more research on where I wanted to go. So I guess then getting, that, getting rid of some of your stuff that you don't need. Right. So yeah, yeah. I forgot to speak about that. I I basically shipped uh, most of the important stuff back to the U.S. and got rid of the rest of the stuff that I wasn't going to use. I started doing research on places that I wanted to go, places that I wanted to live. And once I got my girlfriend on board, we left um, at the end of October. So like four to five months after I came back. Yeah, so the transition of getting rid of your things, planning, yes. all that stuff. Getting, getting rid of stuff, getting uh, the apartment cleaned up, throwing away stuff we don't use, yeah. figuring out where we wanted to go next, buying those tickets. And then once we bought the tickets, it was committed. We picked a date. And that was it. At what stage, um, I guess the, the kind of person who would be very interested in this content, I guess it's a mix. I think a lot of people would be the, the, the guy like ourselves six years ago who's like, oh, okay, this is cool. These guys started businesses three, four years ago, and now they're able to kind of do what they want to do, which is traveling around. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the entrepreneur who's maybe been running a business for a while and is just beginning to understand the concept of uh, you know, a lifestyle business. Yeah. So at what stage financially do you think, and it obviously depends on where you want to go, but at what stage financially do you think you can start to like live in different countries in Southeast Asia? Like how much money do you need to be making per month? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of that depends on your own level of risk tolerance as well as your lifestyle. So yeah. you can easily live pretty well on $2,000 a month and it just depends on what your expenses are and like if you have student loans that you're paying off or other other debt but for me um, like even even I have student loans for example that I have to pay off that I'm making payments on and I can live quite comfortably on $2,000 a month yeah um, and the rest of everything I make I'm I'm reinvesting into the business now if you want to ball out like obviously you can, you'll need a little bit more money but kind of just depends on what your personal preferences are. Well, what about you? What are your personal preferences, I guess? Well, so it's, I'm, I'm becoming... I, mean, I, can, uh, I can break down mine as well, you know? So. I think what, we, we kind of discussed this the other night, but I'm becoming a victim to lifestyle creep where <laughs> you start making more money and your lifestyle starts to also adjust to that increases yeah. in income. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, like I try to like right now I'm living pretty good I feel like I'm very comfortable I can do all the things that I want to do um, as far as going out to eat at different places traveling when, when we want to um, we, we take taxis everywhere we go like we, we live very comfortably um, we are in Asia so that, that helps obviously yeah but like I said you can do that on two to three thousand dollars a month and it's not a big deal um, and for me, that's right now, because I'm trying to reinvest in these businesses and keep them growing, I'm really focusing on capping myself and not, not being overly spendy. 
Yeah, I think for me, um, I mean, obviously it's quite similar, but like for the viewers, like I have a two bedroom apartment in downtown, like in the heart of downtown in Guangzhou. It's not like the best apartment, it's just a normal spot. Um, but if I'm going anywhere, I'm gonna live by myself. Like that's just like, I'm used to that. I'll, either I'm gonna live by myself or I would live with somebody that I'm close with. Um, so that's like, those are like minimums for me. But I know that based on the amount of money I'm paying for my place in, in Guangzhou, which is between $1,200 to $1,300 a month, um, including utilities, I can get a place, I can get a two bedroom place here for that price. However, do I want to do that? Not necessarily, like I want to get a place that's cheaper, but better quality and that's possible. So I feel like, um, I feel like if you're, if you're in a slightly more expensive spot, maybe just keeping the same expenses when you go somewhere else or finding a place like Philippines versus China where it's like if I spend the same amount of money in the Philippines I'd be doing some you know exponentially better shit on yeah. a daily basis but yeah just being conscious of the lifestyle creep like you said like it, for me I mean what in China like I'm going out to restaurants maybe three or four times a week but the rest of the time I'm ordering in relatively inexpensive food yeah um, and food isn't too crazy out yeah. here so yeah but yeah I take I take an Uber DD Uber to work and back and you know I was like I think I took the subway for the first time in like a year it was like three months and you're like get me out of this shit I was like why why would anybody do this to themselves oh man in China it's peasants it's a big, it's a big no no <laughs> no I mean it's no, tough I, like, I did that on the regular especially around rush hour and stuff like that it's just, oh it's that's it's enough so of the reason not to live in China yeah. in itself yeah I mean I did that when I was uh, teaching English and whatever and like I was living in Haiju and I had to go to Tianhe every day. It was like a year of my life just squeezing into the train, squeezing yeah. out of the train. You know, that was that was not a fun experience. Fun but, times. But yeah, I mean, you. Uh, at, I mean, at that time, how much were you living on in China, early days? Uh, man, probably like fifteen hundred bucks a month. My first. I mean, but that includes my. Like I said, that includes some of the debt payments that I had to make. You, you could like, you? if you take all that out, like a thousand bucks a month. Yeah, my first, uh, I'd say my first three months in China, I was living on about seven to six to eight hundred a month. Yeah. And then, and then um, when I moved, <clears throat> when I moved downtown, then it bumped up to about a grand. But yeah, I mean, I was relatively like quite cheap early days. Like, yeah. Not quite, not like very cheap. Like my apartment was three hundred bucks. Month. Yeah, it's gone up in the, quite a bit in the last three years. Yeah, yeah. But even like the spot that I was in was not the nicest place and it was outside of the city. So I think a place like that would still be probably around 400, you know? Yeah. It wouldn't be, it, would, it wouldn't have gone up by that much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, so obviously we're saying it depends on your lifestyle choices. Uh, what are some of the reasons why, because I mean, there's a lot of people like, for example, China Mike, Michael Michelini. Um, you know, other people that we know that have been in China for 10 years. Mm -hmm. obviously, obviously, the two people I just mentioned have left now, but um, what do you think are some of the reasons why those guys were able to stay longer and then, you know, you're, you're ready, to, ready to bounce? Um, let's see. I think part of it could, have, could be that their business is tied to China and, and the fact that they need to have be physically present there. Um, yeah. I know if, for example, if you're running a sourcing business, 
like Mike, you need to be able to go to the factories and interact with Chinese on a regular basis. Um, I'm not sure all of the businesses Michelini is involved in, but I think it's kind of the same thing where it just made more sense for him to stay there to grow these businesses. Yeah. And for me, what I realized is that I actually don't need to, like I, I established the relationships with the suppliers. I actually visited the factories. And after I've, I've done that and I've placed multiple orders with them, there was no longer a need for me to physically be there anymore. Full and time. Full time. And being there actually felt like it was hindering my ability to grow and progress because of certain things like the internet and just the, uh, the mental strain of the day-to-day -day life and hassles yeah. were, were, were weighing on my conscience. Things like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. I think it's a combination of a couple of this. Well, Michelini, a big thing is you got married to... Uh, oh, to, you to forgot to mention Michelini, that. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a big that's one. That's a huge one. I mean, yeah, he was two kids, and um, her dad was like living with them, so it was like you know, it's kind of you, you're you're in that situation, right? Um, but yeah, definitely Michelini's brand and a lot of his businesses, <coughs> and, and especially with the events and stuff like that. Yeah, he's the expert with, in China, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. and that's so it makes sense to stay there. And I think um, also definitely like have they had like a love hate relationship with the I the think everyone does I mean like even that I even after I've left I still think it will be fun to go back and yeah. visit just yeah. because it's chaotic and it's it's not like any other place in the world but you, you living just, there long term a, a it's like a little bit of distance from it yeah it's like to go back. give me a little break <laughs> go back for a week here and there but you know that's that's about as much for, as I can handle for me I mean um, I mean I still plan on being like half a year in China, half a year outside of China. Yeah. Like, I think I'm going to be going, definitely have a love-hate relationship with the country, but I think I'm going to be going back there for the rest of my life. Like, it's just one of those things. Uh, you know, there's there's so, certain things about China that are just so unique and so interesting that you just can't find them anywhere else. Um, but then there's also certain aspects in terms of your lifestyle, um, which, you know, Obviously, it's becoming more expensive, but there's just certain Western comforts, I think, that I'm beginning to need. Yeah. When you, like we said, if you're starting to make more money, yep. uh, you want those things. And it's like, why, why should I keep putting up with this, <laughs> this nonsense? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, uh, I mean, if you're, if, again, if you're making significantly more money, it's like, why, why would I spend it here? Right. I'd rather go to like, like Hong Kong or I'd rather go to- Exactly, you know? yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just a there's a lot of different aspects. What do you think specifically? I guess if we could break down, I guess it's what like the 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 food, cultural differences, language barrier. Um, About why like yeah. why one would why one would want to leave? Yeah, internet. Yeah, um, for me, it was food slash health. Yeah. That's a big one. Um, when I felt like I couldn't get good food or, you know, that would be, that would be like incredibly frustrating. Yeah. And I, I did feel like my, you know, I was losing weight. I had already lost a bunch of weight and not being able to like eat enough, like sufficient nutrients on a day-to-day -day basis started to have it, take a toll on my, my like mind. It's expensive if you want to eat healthy, right? And even if you, even if you 
cough up the extra money, like the quality is still not fantastic. Like you're not getting high quality stuff. You're just not. Unless you're buying all imported stuff. And, yeah, yeah, which is gonna cost you like four or five times the I, amount. I think you you need to have a private chef and then private trained chef that knows how to cook Western food. And then also the all the food that you're buying is from the imported Western supermarkets. Yeah. Yep. So, so which which would be a it's pretty chunk of change. Yeah. Like, yeah. Every month. And then besides that. Um, for me, it was, again, to relate to health, the air quality, uh, which was very bothersome for me. And it's not so much that like, it's not like I actually felt anything in my lungs. I mean, it's the, it's the part of just like seeing that every day and that effect on your, your mental clarity. Yeah. Seeing that shit every day and knowing that you're not breathing healthy air just really got to me. And then next, I would say internet was a was a big factor too. Dealing with a VPN and like websites taking forever to load, that just always all those things together just start to weigh on you. <coughs> too much pollution from China, it's taking its toll, man. It's its toll. <coughs> all right. Um, I was gonna say internet. I think internet is maybe one of the number one things. Mm-hmm. Just the hindrance of like, I mean, I've had days where it was like I was trying to upload a YouTube video. Yeah. <clears throat> it's taking me the whole day yeah. to upload the thing. Or like, I, near the end, I, I remember specifically when you want to wind down or relax and you, you put on Netflix or a YouTube video yeah. and it pauses every 30 seconds and yeah. you're just like, you just want to fucking blow your brains out. Because <laughs> you're like, you, there's, no, there's no outlet, there's no release. Like, you, you can't de-stress. <laughs> yeah, being uh, constantly reminded that you're in China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that would... Yeah, near the end, I was like counting down the days. I was like, 11 more days and then we get out of this fucking place. Yeah. Yeah, so I didn't want to say anything bad about the people, but there are things that... Well, it's, it's not necessarily like the people themselves individually. It's just, I mean, stuff that we've talked about before where you, uh, you know, you can't get off the train because well, the people are running Right, so I also, that's the thing is like, I don't want to generalize and say that everyone is like this in China, yeah. but... There is, there are issues like that with the people that that can drive you bonkers. Like, just different attitudes towards things, different behaviors that we have. The, the, the issue is, is it's like they're not rude people. It's just they, they value different things, and things that we see rude, they don't see rude, yeah, and, just and vice to, versa. And just so. to be clear, there are a lot of Chinese people who feel exactly the same way about the stuff that we're talking about. Like, I've had numerous conversations with my friends who are locals, born and raised, <clears throat> maybe traveled a few times, some of them haven't, and they also get frustrated about the same things that we're frustrated about. Oh, yeah, that, yeah that's It's just that thing. They, they've grown up in that environment, so it's more, they're used they, to it. They, they just, it's, they're just, to them it's just reality, yeah. like, they're tolerant, but we've seen what it's like, not like not that. To be so like, when, yeah. we, when you come from the West and you're like, you, there's like 15, million people trying to get into a subway door that hasn't even opened yet they, they won't even let the people get off you're just like you're like how is this happening right yeah. now like yeah. there's a lack of logic sometimes that you just that can drive you mad but those things like you said you're really good at avoiding situations like that so it's like it depends on where you live and yeah, your you, situation you, you gotta, I, was, I was pretty far away from the downtown yeah. so i always i had to take public transportation on like every day, day so no, I, I mean I definitely like again early days because I experienced that for a year 
I was like, okay, if I'm like wherever I move, my office has to be right there. The gym has to be right there. I yeah. want to be able to walk everywhere because I just don't want to have to deal with this extra shit. And that helps. It helps a lot. Like if you are in a, a good area and everything is within walking distance and you're not dealing with traffic, you're not dealing with the subway, you're not dealing with being shoved or things like that. Yeah. There are days, uh, maybe even weeks, where things are just smooth for me. I just, I'm, like, my daily routine is good. End up at Mikasa, get a little shisha, you know what I mean? Just, like, yeah, just chilled, relaxed. Um, and I also think... I also think if at the beginning of your business, if you're just grinding, like you're so focused, 12 hours, 15 hours, 16 hours a day, and it's just work, some of this other, some of the lifestyle stuff just falls to the wayside. You don't even Yeah, you don't, even you don't really care about that, yeah. yeah. I think sometimes the issue with people that uh, maybe transition out of a difficult situation early, like go to Chiang Mai <coughs> early or even Manila, early, you get too much of the lifestyle stuff too early on in your, mm -hmm. your, your yeah, I, we've talked about this, but I'm definitely grateful that I put in, you know, a significant amount of time into living in China because if you can make it there and still thrive, then I feel like honestly anywhere you go is easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every city that I've been to after leaving has just been like, oh, this we've is been, like fucking heaven. We've been the Karate Kid training with. Mr. Miyagi yeah. in the mountains for you know six months, and then we go to like a tournament with these kids who are playing around, and it's like this is, this is light work, light work. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it's not comparable, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and then at the end of the day, um, I mean, part of the reason I think people stay in China, and part of the reason why I've stayed so long and why I will keep going back is that there's still a shit ton of opportunities there. There's still, there's nothing like. The, the, how quickly things move there is there's no yeah. other country it's crazy that's, that's moving that quickly construction wise technology wise um, various businesses that, that pop up there yeah you know? so there's no red tape so a decision is made and then it's done yeah yeah it, everything gets done extremely fast so that's always, that's always fascinating and I think <clears throat> Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Even McElhinney used to talk about that. It's like the when you start to sort of accept the chaos um, and then you also enjoy the progress, then it becomes much easier to live there. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you're building a family, that's another thing. Yep. With Mike, there's the sourcing side of things, but then also the basketball thing, which is his favorite sport and his passion. Yep. So for him to be able to bring in players and then for him to be playing basketball semi-professionally in China, I think that was a that was a huge thing. Yeah. Like, there's no other country that he would have been able to do that either. Yeah, he's fluent in Chinese. He likes yeah. the culture. Yeah, he gets he gets best of both worlds. Yeah, and if you talk to Mike about it, like he will say, like the reason why he transitioned out is mainly for health reasons. It's mainly yeah. just like I think that's a lot for a lot of people. Yeah, it's yeah. a big one. Mainly for health, and I'm beginning to feel that as well. Like I feel like um, also just because you guys are gone and all that stuff, it's like I'm beginning to feel the, the health aspect as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man. We only got one one chance on this earth. Only one chance, yeah. Okay, what have you, I guess, what are the, the between the, the second year to the third year of being in China, what are some of the business lessons that you've learned since running your Amazon business? Because um, we were talking about you like know, specifically about the game and all that stuff, but like, what are you seeing now? Specifically about like how it relates to China or just in how general? How it relates to China. Well, one one thing that was different is just the understanding the importance of connecting with your factories or suppliers and actually making an effort to 
go see them and meet with them yeah. because you hear people say that, that it's important to build the relationships, but it wasn't until after I went and actually met with the factories, the factory bosses that I was actually buying from where it seemed like that all clicked for me, like that all made sense. I got yeah. better deals, they were more responsive to my needs, and that was important because now going forward, anything that I want to manufacture or create, I will spend a lot of time making sure that I pick a factory that I know I want to build a relationship for the long term and make an effort to meet them in person and under make sure that we, we're on the same page. Yeah. Um, well, you're also at a stage right now since you've been, when did you leave exactly? November? Beginning of November, yeah. So you've been to Thailand, Vietnam. Uh, I have been to Vietnam, but that was like when I first came out to Asia. Okay. Yeah. So since you left China, which countries have you been to? Just Thailand and, and the Philippines. The Philippines. Yeah. And You're the about US. to go to Korea. Yep. Um, you've met a decent amount of Amazon FBA sellers that are not, not living yeah. in China, never yeah. been to China maybe, or been for like a week or two or something? A bunch. What are you beginning to notice in terms of how you view the importance of having been in China, dealing with suppliers and stuff like that, versus how they view that kind of stuff? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because you can obviously be very successful with Amazon yeah. and never even have gone to China. But I think that having lived there and visited the suppliers and seeing how stuff is done, it just gives you a much more rich perspective. Um, and there's just a better understanding of how they do business and how they think. And I think that is so important because you have to understand how to communicate with these people when you want things to, to get accomplished. Yeah. And whether, I mean, if you have not lived there before, you just have to see it. You have to understand that there's a certain way that these people talk and the way that they, they do things, the way they understand instructions. Do you find that a lot of the guys are trying to bend the suppliers to their will? Um, like, me, what do you mean by that? Just in, in the sense of like, there's certain information that a supplier needs to give a quote or whatever, and then they're like, no, why can't you just tell me that? You uh, know what I mean, just that, yeah, that yeah, frustration yeah. of like, why don't you guys think like me? Yeah, no, that's, you know, yeah, that's, so that's, so simple. Why that's kind of what I was yeah. getting to is like, yeah. there's just a lack of understanding of how to, how to communicate your ideas across that you need to like, you need to set it up so that they can give you the information that you wanted to get, but yeah, telling them to that <laughs> getting frustrated is probably a common thing for people who haven't yeah. been there, and you're yeah. gonna get frustrated regardless. But now, if, if you've lived there, you have a better understanding of why you're getting frustrated and how you can solve that issue. What since you've left, are um, do you have any fears about not being able to just pop over to the factory? Have you experienced any things where you're like, man, if I was in China, I would have. Oh, to fix this in like a, you know, a uh, space of time. The only thing was when I was in the U.S. just the time difference, um, and yeah, a little bit of a little bit of worry when things are, when it's crunch time and like for example when it's Chinese New Year and yep. you have huge orders that are supposed to go out and you don't know what's going on. They're not like communicating well. It does make it a little bit more scary when you're not there because. You're like, if, if it was the worst case scenario, I could hop on a train or a flight and go figure out what the hell they're doing. Yeah. But 
when you're in America and you only have like, you know, a, a window of six hours to talk to them and then, then the rest of the day they're, you're sleeping or they're sleeping, uh, makes things a little bit more difficult. Man, like, I mean, I just, before I, before I came over to the Philippines, I spent two weeks traveling to various parts of China, northern China, mostly Nantong. And one of my clients joined me and, you know, he, his, he's the CEO of the company, he's co-owner, and it's a pretty large business. But he, every year around Chinese New Year, comes through for like a week to 10 days just to make sure that he gets these shipments out because with his stuff, like if they run out of inventory, that's a significant yeah, chunk huge of losses. Yeah, yeah. So there is certainly that aspect where it's like, even though he's been dealing with China for five to six years, remotely, yeah. he's still coming out here. You gotta make sure they're not, because yeah. that's the thing is like, when they're rushed, they will cut corners yeah. to get things done. You know, think about it. They, they're about to have a, a month-long vacation, yeah. and the only thing that's in front of them is, is this order. Is this order? So and they're like, if they you're have, not there, you're they're like, we don't give a fuck. And then they have out. workers constantly leaving early. Yeah, like these that. are people who are, you know, it's not the the most uh, educated individuals who are yeah. working at these factories, and they're just working quick, doing what they're told, so they can get the fuck out. Yeah. Um, if you don't have an eye on it, then things can go bad. Yeah, and even just catching issues really quickly because like um, we were inspecting the products as they were being produced. So at least if there were some small issues that could be fixed in the moment, we could fix them. Yeah. Um, so that just helps with that. Like, otherwise, I mean, what can you do if you send an inspection at the end and the last day to ship out is like two days later? Yeah, there's nothing they can do. Fix anything. Yeah. Right. So definitely still a lot of value to to come in and around that time. Um, just thinking so so the only real anxiety you have at the stage is more about when there's major issues like um, an order that you need to get shipped out by a certain amount of time it's it's always the crunch it's always when all my stress doing amazon fba is like near the end of an order yeah um or if they go beyond like the expected lead time yeah. And right before it ships out, making sure that the logistics picks it up, uh, the, the forwarding company picks it up in time, and like all that stuff is is running smoothly. That's about the only time that things get kind of sketchy. Um, but as I've gotten better at the process of doing this, then it's just yeah, it is becoming easier. But and we were discussing like other ways in terms of um, in terms of your order cycle. <laughs> ways that you could have it run a little bit more smoothly like if you're at a stage where you can put down a 30% deposit on six months worth of inventory and then have the factory just produce and ship out inventory every month or every two months whatever it is but I mean the biggest um, thing when you're negotiating terms with the factories is like they don't want to commit to buying all their raw materials for six months of orders yeah. when they're not sure what's going to happen so if you can put down at least a deposit for that much then they can at least buy their raw materials and you know like raw materials and preparing an order is probably what takes the longest in, in every situation. Yeah. Like if they say it's 35 days, it's 20 to 25 days of them buying and preparing right. raw materials. The last yeah. part is just them assembling everything. Just them assembling and, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, there's just there's ways that, you know, you can systemize that and stuff. And, mm -hmm. and of course, with the, with the uh, quality stuff, you know, QC companies, all that shit. Yeah. Um, I think for me... Anxiety-wise, the anxiety that I have with leaving China, as we discussed this, it's very, extremely difficult for me to get 
USD into RMB in China without me physically being there, which means I have to put a lot of trust into one of my employees. Um, obviously, there's things like NEAT and stuff like that, but there's a lot of fees that get incurred with that. Um, and then, I mean, a lot of my stuff at this stage is problem-solving being the face of my client it's not that frequently that I have to deal with major issues but a good part about being here is like I could pop into to China within two hours like yeah you know so like that's the that's the, like I wouldn't go to Colombia right now for example for six months like, yeah I just I wouldn't I would not feel comfortable doing that at all it's too far it's too far I'm not Different at that time stage zones. yet yep. time zones all the all those issues but if I'm two hours away from China and I'm in the same time zone and, you know, if anything happens, I could be there tomorrow. Right. Then, you know, that's, that's so... But yeah, my main anxiety really is just about money. <laughs> just making sure that we have enough money to keep operations running smoothly. Because um, that's, like, the main thing I'm trying to figure out. And then, of course, uh, I think there's another aspect of, like, when you're not physically in the office with the staff, real-time problem-solving, you know, um, but at the same, if you look at, obviously, if you watch like my day in the life video, I work in batches so that my staff usually will send me messages in Slack with questions and things like that. So I think I've trained my staff to operate like I'm not there, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think I should be fine with that. But it will be interesting to see because sometimes even then they break the rule and Imogen will turn around and stare at me for a bit and I can feel her eyes and I'm like... What do you want? What, what do you want? <laughs> Rico, I'm like, oh god damn it! I'm in a Pomodoro right now. Jesus Christ! <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I think it's just going to be one of those things where they'll be forced to really follow the the systems that I've developed. Yeah. So I guess my my advice generally would be like, even though, and this is I guess me considering myself a four hour work week baby, even though you're physically in the office every day with your staff and stuff like that, is like. And it might be a little bit weird to start asking them to write you messages on Slack when they're sitting like five feet away from you. But I mean, you know, if you're trying to transition out and have the business run uh, by itself, or you want to be able to have the freedom to travel when you want to travel, you have to sort of implement those systems early. Yeah. And then have your staff used to it. What's really cool right now is that we have two employees in, in Nantong that are full-time employees, and I only see them once a month. So it's kind of been interesting to work with that, where we have the usual morning meetings and then we have the Slack stuff and um, all the SOPs that I provided them and then they're using that and they're creating reports. And it's pretty smooth actually at this at this stage. So, yeah. You know, um, yeah, I guess yeah, just make some systems and, and you try to stick with it, but do it early. That's, yeah, the earlier the better. The earlier the better. It's gonna yeah. get more complicated if you wait. What, uh, okay, so if I'm, a dude right now sitting in his dorm room, um, you know, in New York, and being like, okay, trying to go to Southeast Asia as soon as I finish school, or, you know, soon after I finish school. I want to sell on Amazon, or I want to do some sort of e-commerce crowdfunding campaign, whatever it is, definitely going to have to source from China. How much time would you recommend? What's the minimum amount of time you'd recommend that they, they go to China for? 
Well, if it's specifically for Amazon FBA, I think I think you could get away with uh, like one or two months, honestly. If 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 it's just to like, yeah, but you also have to take into account like if somebody somebody like that um, might be going there also to generate ideas, like if they know exactly yeah. what they want. And then in then, that, I mean, I'd say in that case, like six months to a year, yeah. you'll get a you'll get a pretty good idea of what's what's going down. Yeah. Um, I was thinking if you were just going there to like meet a factory or two, like you know, you can do that one to two months and watch your product being developed and then shipped out. But yeah. if you want to go understand how things work, culture, how they do business, six months to a year would be a pretty solid amount of time, I think. I think after after a year, yeah, I felt like comfortable doing everything I needed to do in China as far as getting around, kind of how, how things work, how people communicate. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I, I think um, the good thing about now is that you guys have things like my YouTube channel and Harrison's YouTube channel and uh, podcast and enter China and like all the stuff that accelerates your progress. Yeah. Whereas like uh, when Mike and, and Nick Ramil and these guys came out, <laughs> there wasn't any podcasts about business in China no. that to learn everything by themselves and it took them two to three years to figure, figure shit out. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I think six months to a year is, is, is a optimal amount of time and that's specifically if you kind of know already that you want to make a physical product like if you're going to China without any idea what kind of business you want to start it's going to take two years take you three years like what it did for me <laughs> <laughs> two, to th two to three years yeah but if you know like I want to make an original design product um, I'm going to crowdfund it I have a couple different product ideas mm -hmm. that's a year because you have to have the initial design development discovery phase what you're going through right now um, but you could also start that in the U.S. or wherever you are. But then the development itself, dealing with the factories, getting prototypes made, like all that stuff is going to take, you're going to go through multiple versions of the prototype. Um, even just finding the right supplier, like all that stuff is going to take like a year before you're at a stage where you could leave. And and also you want to be there, if with an original design, you want to be there during the mass production. Right. Because as you guys may be aware of, most crowdfunding campaigns are super delayed with shipping our product to the end, to the end, end yeah. users. Um, and then six months, yeah, if you're doing like a drop shipping or private label, and then the first couple months would be trying to discover new products, research, all that stuff, getting samples, maybe launching maybe one or two products, seeing what pops. And then, you know, after six months, you should have a good understanding. You should have been to a ton of factories yeah. at that stage. If you're serious, you know. For launching products, it's great. Yeah. Because, I mean, from a year ago, I had one product. Yeah. And I launched six products last year. And I was able to do that fast because I was in China, being able to get samples, um, contact different factories, go visit those factories. If I was in the US, it would have been a different story. On the flip side, even for guys with established Amazon businesses, um, I guess me and uh, Mark, we just, I interviewed Mark, the video should be out at this stage. We were kind of talking about the same thing is there's a lot of guys who are running Amazon businesses that have no idea that they could cut down their per unit cost mm -hmm. by finding a new supplier. They might be working with a trading company. They might have very specific situations that you can only really discover if you either, one, have somebody on the ground in China, or two, wink, wink, in 
Washington, or two, you physically go there yourself. Yeah. And I think about Nick, uh, Nick Nerov. Uh, Nick Nerov, he's got a YouTube channel as well. I think we did a podcast where we talked about it. Um, his factory, his initial factory that he'd been working with for two to three years, we went there, um, and it was in the middle of nowhere. They were the only, he was the only client that they were making that specific product for. They were focused on a completely different version of his product using different materials. And he had tripled his order quantity and they were trying to raise his per unit cost. So I was like, I was like, man, this is just, yeah, it doesn't make sense at all. He was like, look, I can even double my next order. And they were like, no, we still need to raise the cost. And I was like, the reason is because they're not focused on this product. Which means they're not, whatever agreement they have with their own material supplier, they're not ordering enough of it. Or they're not specialized. They're not specialized. And quite honestly, I just, I think they don't, they don't care, you know? So, yeah. So I was like, you, what you have to do is like find another supplier that's specialized specifically in your product because you're purchasing enough product right now that a small to medium-sized manufacturer would be extremely happy to take on an established Amazon business that's had, that has two to three years of history and growth as quickly as you do. So then, you know, we ended up cutting his pre-unit cost by like 40% yeah. with the new factory that he found. It took, took a while, he had to go to freaking Urumuchi and shit like that. Like, it was not easy, but yeah. there was not something that, that, that was not something that he could have done remotely. No. And that makes a hell of a difference. If you can cut down your expenses by 40%. That's huge, man. Like, yeah. what is that going to do for your business, you know? So that's, a, so yeah, even for you established guys out there, like, stop being lazy. Don't be a lazy bitch. <laughs> or pay me. Fuck <laughs> you, pay me. <laughs> what advice do you have for the, the good people? What parting advice do you have for anybody that is thinking about China, thinking about e-commerce, dropshipping, you know, physical product space? I would say don't, don't try to learn too much. Like learn the bare minimum you need to, to do the first thing and then do that thing and you go step by step. Basically the issue that I see most people having with uh, dropshipping, Amazon FBA or whatever, is analysis paralysis or trying to learn every single thing about the business before they get started. Um, what I have done for the last two product-based businesses that I've gone through is figuring out how, how to do the first thing or whatever it takes to get started and then you just kind of learn as you go. Um, but that is, that's the best way to learn. So for Amazon FBA, don't dwell on a product too long. Like you do have to find a good product, but it's, you're not gonna hit a winner. It's very rare that you'll hit a winning product like the first time around. Um, what about the climate of FBA right now? As a newcomer? I think it's, uh, it's difficult. Yeah, as a newcomer, like if you have no experience, it's not going to be an easy way to make money. Um, but if I wouldn't, I wouldn't say don't try it though. Like this is a perfect example of like maybe launch something a little bit smaller, smaller order to learn the process, learn about marketing, and those types of things. Maybe put, put aside some money where it's like I'm willing to lose this. Just right, to learn like. The Think of it like a, like a course. Like right now, there's gurus selling courses for four thousand yeah. dollars. Don't fucking buy that course. Spend four thousand dollars on an inventory run. Learn everything there is about that process, and you'll get you'll be way more experienced after that. 
you have a better idea of why that product worked or didn't work, and then you, you go and you build from there. Pretty solid advice there, Mr. Bevins. Was it? Yeah, that's pretty good. Oh, all right. I'm like, I'm impressed. I'm like, oh, okay. Cool, what do you think I am, man? Look, look, what, been, I, look what I've built. Buddy's, buddy's been learning <laughs> out here, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, my parting advice for newcomers with FBA is, yeah, try like Harrison said, you know, be prepared to, re it's not going to be as easy. Try to spend money where you're actually doing it in a practical way, not a theoretical way. So with the courses and stuff like that. And I mean, you can get help from, I'm not a shameless plug, but from companies like mine where you don't have to spend a ton of money to get help. Like you can get help on QC, you can get help on product research for you know a couple hundred bucks, right? So like little things like that that are gonna give you an edge at the beginning. I think you should be looking out for those things and then, just trying it out, just you know, trying it out. And if you can, if you can, come to China and start teaching English, and use the money that you make from teaching English, live cheaply, and then use the money that you uh, are making from teaching English to try out different products. That is still that is still a viable option. Is getting an English teaching job in China? Yeah, know? there will always be yeah. English teaching jobs. Yeah, it's just the demand is so high. What is the smallest thing you've done that's brought you the largest results in the last year? in your business, 80-20 principle. Smallest thing I've done is probably the most of my results. See what I did there? You know, my, my questions run deep. <laughs> well, it's kind of like Tim Ferriss's question, just a little bit different. Well, I mean, come on. No, uh, it's a good question. It's a good question. I would just, I would have to dwell on it a little bit. Sauce, can you can you give me your example? Um, for me, the smallest thing I've done that's brought me the largest results was cutting down on expenses. Like being, so uh, this is something I, I plan on talking about in uh, my year-end review that I usually do. But I got kind of caught up in the idea of expansion being hiring more employees getting a bigger office it was a it was more ego than anything else like i remember thinking to myself i remember feeling like you know this uh kind of endorphin high when people would ask me like oh um how many employees did you have last year i was like oh i had two full-time whatever it's like how many employees do you have now seven and it's like yeah you know what i mean it's just i got caught up in that without thinking to myself well can we do we necessarily need seven employees? Can we do the same amount of work with three as with seven? And then mm. therefore we're banking more money on a monthly basis because just because you're making X amount, five, six, five figures a month or whatever for three, four, five months in a row for the first time doesn't mean you're going to be making that amount forever. Yeah. Um, profit wise. So that was the biggest, the biggest lesson I heard last week. I, I think for me it would be focus. Um, just making sure that I'm not trying to do too many things at once. So I think it's pretty common for people starting out to, to try to do too many things at once and that can be distracting and you, you waste your energy on stuff that's not giving you any return. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was like focusing on the, the two brands that I had already established. Like instead of, I thought about launching a different brand or different products. And instead I just doubled down on the brands that were already working, launched variations of those products. 
and those have all been doing well. So I spent less energy and I'm getting more return on those two. Yeah. And just my focus is making sure that those are completely optimized and running well. I've got a lot of reviews on all the products so that you know they're not just going to fall out underneath me. But that would be my advice, focusing, doubling down on stuff that's already working. Three books, podcasts, or vlogs, blogs that you'd recommend people to, to, to check out? To- three total. Three total. Does it, it can be a combination of whatever. It could be more than three, but um, three total. Okay. Well, so the one that you and me talked a little bit about is the E-Myth Revisited, the book, which is really good even if, you're, if you've never started a business or you, you've already started one. Um, won't talk too much about it, just read into that. The new um, podcast that I've been listening to that we've also talked about is The the Pitch, which... God damn Harrison, you stole, you stole the one, I was, was going to throw that out there. Which is good because it's entertaining, but also like inspirational. Yeah. You hear a lot of different ideas from various people doing a lot of different stuff, and like you, you, you see how some of these crazy ideas are raising multi- millions and millions of dollars, which is super cool. It's it's basically like um, Shark Tank, or if you're from Canada, Dragon's Den, but it's way more realistic and they spend way more time on each pitch. Like you actually get to see the the right question. Like with Shark Tank and Dragon's Den, it's just a high pressure situation. Every pitch is like five minutes, but it's not really five minutes. Yeah. In reality, they do spend an hour, two hours talking to each individual, but they cut it down into the most interesting parts. Yeah. Um, and then also in, they, they try to take a much larger evaluation of the companies. So, but the pitch is just like, for somebody like myself, who eventually wants to become like an investor, I really love hearing the kind of questions that they ask, right. the way they think about their businesses. And that also kind of makes me think about my business as well. Am I doing the right things? What things should I be setting yeah. up if I wanted to, let's say, exit, whatever? You know what I mean? Types so, of numbers and metrics that you need to be thinking that, about. Yeah, exactly. It's really, yeah. really good stuff. Um, as far as, I'm trying to think of it, there's any blogs that I read. This is kind of a weird this isn't a blog or anything else, but like I've found what is helpful also is being a part of a Facebook group or like like a like a niche specific Facebook group or or mastermind group. Yeah. So uh, like I'd say half the stuff that I learned through Amazon FBA was reading other people's questions on some of these focused uh, Facebook groups for Amazon, and you can ask your own questions, you get feedback. So being a part of that and Contributing and also getting that information is another thing I would recommend doing. And they have got Facebook groups for every every business group that you could think of, every niche, whatever. It doesn't matter industry. For me, books-wise, uh, crucial conversations. Something I just finished a couple a uh, couple weeks ago. Um, really good book in terms of being able to recognize when ego is getting in the way of. In a, you know, an important conversation and adjusting to that. Um, like I think I, I told you and, and Carl that I think a lot of these skills that they mentioned in the book are stuff that people develop when you travel and you get to understand different cultures and you're used to talking to different people. Um, and you, you develop that patience when you're in a new country and you're trying to get your point across but they don't understand you and stuff like that. Um, but it was just good to have like a formal structure to that. I was like, oh, I, I do a lot of these things. I just, I never thought about it in that way. 
But then there was also a lot of uh, really solid tips that, that you could use to um, moving forward. Obviously, they focused a lot about in, in, with regards to employee boss conversations and then also um, meetings mm. and you know how ego plays into meetings how people react to certain things um, another book would be what was the book I was going to mention I think I, I don't know if I mentioned this on the YouTube channel before another book would be Mastering the Rockefeller Habits um, this book in my opinion man it has to be top three books I've ever read like the four hour work week is always number one because it was such a huge inspiration but mastering the Rockefeller habits is like for anybody that's getting to a stage where they have three plus employees it gives you that structure where you have your weekly your daily weekly monthly quarterly meetings and how that all flows together and then setting um, you know KPIs and, and, and goals for the individuals in your company and then also what the story of your company is and how all of that stuff that structure fits together and how to track it and and they actually give you worksheets in the book that you can download like i basically structured my entire uh, company uh, daily weekly monthly all that stuff that with the planning around around that book and then i incorporated some of the applications that we already use into it so huge 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 book um podcasts Business Wars, Business Wars by Wondry. Wondry, uh, Wondry is kind of like um, Gimlet. They're like a podcast company, so they have a bunch of different podcasts. They have legal, uh, legal wars, but Business Wars for me is like my favorite. I listen to it every week, um, and they just basically break down uh, competition between some of the most famous companies in the world. So they've done like Apple versus Microsoft. They've done uh, Sony versus Nintendo. Like PlayStation versus Nintendo, um, you know, and they just six episodes every every time, and it's like a story with factual information and then voice acting and stuff like that. So really brings you into the world. Um, YouTube channels. I'm, I'm not a big like I'm not, like in terms of business. I'm not a big YouTube. I haven't been watching guy. any business stuff yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. It's more just entertainment. Tony Baker comedy, man. Tony Baker comedy. Shout out, you know that's. He's my favorite favorite com comedian right now, and he does like these voiceovers, animal voiceovers, which is like he's like world class at that. Like it's really funny. He gets the sound effects. Like I just yeah. I don't even know how he did breath control. It's like, legit. It's really really funny. He has an Instagram page as well, Tony Baker Comedy. That's where most of like his clips are. So check that out. Yeah, that's it. So again, if people want to find you, where should they go? Yeah, my. Uh I've got a blog, harrisonbevins.com, Instagram, harrison underscore bevins, and that's probably the two most uh, active things that I've got going for me. So, YouTube channel, I'm posting like once a month, but also same name. And uh, if you want to reach out to me, that's podcast at sourcefinasia.com, um, sourcefinasia.com slash made in China for all the Made in China podcast episodes and show notes. Obviously, the YouTube channel is also sourced to find Asia. And I will see you guys next week. Cheers.